Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Hello and welcome to Shank Bagley, an old Lincolnshire adjective to describe absolutely anything loose and disorderly which sums up this Lincolnshire lass quite nicely, as I do tend to go off on a tangent every so often. In a moment, we'll chat saffron and discover which part of the body suffers the most growing it. Take a history lesson all about deer in the UK, including how our roe deer aren't really ours. The hospitality industry is struggling, so how do we attract chefs? We hear from one such programme doing exactly that. And I love a success story, and I know you will too, when we meet a woman who visited a food festival with her mum and decided there and then to set up her own Christmas pudding business, which now, eight years on, exports worldwide. First though, with it being episode 19, here are a few other things with the same number. Guns in a salute for the Vice President of the United States. Letter A's in a Malaysian Scrabble set, the most of any letter in any language. And the most underpants pulled on in 30 seconds. Achieved by Rachel Schmidt from the States, happened in Dublin, Ireland in July last year. Jeez, probably takes me that time just to put one on at the moment. Not quite as supple as I once was. So hope all is well where you are. Pleased to report I've had an incident-free week, she says, touching wood. Although I did mention to a couple of young chefs who were getting a little excited before their demonstration at an event that they perhaps curbed their language as there was an older lady working behind the scenes. And then it turns out I was the same age as the older lady. I know, in my head I think I'm still in my thirties. Time for our first guest and let's stay with young chefs as the hospitality industry in the UK is struggling. It was before Covid and now it's even worse as businesses find it difficult to recruit for both front of house and in the kitchen as people don't want to work long hours including evenings and weekends so it's a scary time at the moment. Andrew Clements is the training and development chef for the Hotel Folk, a group of award-winning luxury hotels and businesses across Suffolk. Andrew is leading their newly launched chef development programme, having worked in many prestigious venues worldwide, including Marriott Hotel in Kensington and Ritz-Carlton in Barcelona. He's worked with Jotam Ottolenghi, Rick Stein, John Turoad. He certainly has a pedigree. And also, he himself was one of the original apprentices at Jamie Oliver's 15 restaurant and featured on the television programme Jamie's Kitchen. So it makes him the perfect choice to inspire the next generation. I met him at Albrecht Food Festival in Suffolk and asked him how the programme was going. It's been running for approximately three months. It took us about six months to go round the hotels and to find the right chefs to go onto it. We wanted to offer it to our current chefs first because we wanted to kind of give back to the chefs that we had rather than promote new chefs coming into the company. Um, we didn't want any of the chefs to um, unwillingly want to join it. We wanted people with full participation because there's a lot from them and a lot of commitment from them to do it. Um, and we've got currently 10 chefs throughout six hotels currently on the course. Amazing. Um, and this is a reflection on what is happening. And I know you don't like the word struggling, but the, the industry the is industry struggling. The industry is absolutely struggling. Um, I don't believe that we um, there isn't the chefs out there it just isn't the industry that is as, as top as it was before for new chefs to come in so the idea is to try to reignite 
a bit of passion within the chefs that we've already got or within the industry itself. And one of the ones we met when you were doing a demo was Tom, and he he started, but he didn't seem to be going anywhere. Is that fair to say? He Absolutely. couldn't see a path. He was a little bit stuck in his position. He was a kitchen porter for some time. He has a lot of passion for cooking, but didn't really know what roads to kind of to take after that. So this kind of helped spark that. Um, and his head chef is fully behind the programme as well, much like myself, and he almost kind of helped him, advised that he, he jumped at that opportunity. Um, so the things that you do with them, yes, they get the training, they get the mentoring, but also it's that connection with the food and farming, isn't it? it the fact absolutely. that they meet the producers. We want them to meet all of the suppliers of all the food. We don't want them to just receive a delivery and not understand where it's come from. So the idea is, is that we take them to where the food starts and they start their journey there. So when the food arrives at their restaurant, they know the whole journey that is taken. And then hopefully when they provide a special with that, for example, they will um, they will know all about it and, and, and continue the care and passion that they had for it. Well, it's out of respect, isn't it, if it for, for the product, be it a, a living Absolutely. creature or a vegetable. It's, it's, it's respecting every part of that produce. Absolutely. I've noticed a lot of chefs just see deliveries as deliveries and they load it away in the fridge and they don't think anything more of it. I want them to, to know the driver by name, to know the journey that the food has taken um, and the, like you say, then to then treat everything with the respect that it deserves. How long's the mentorship or the development? Um, they can do an M, uh, an MVQ two or three, and that will be twelve months or eighteen months. Um, it's on the job learning. Uh, once a month, I take them to one of the suppliers, and then on the following month, they go into what's called a master class, where we have a, an external tutor who will teach them, for example, they did a nose-to-tail class. The idea behind this is it's similar to what they would do at a college, but it's done in, in a professional environment. It allows them to be out of their kitchen for a day, fully paid by the company, but they're able to make mistakes. They're able to have their creative mind. Sometimes some of our restaurants are quite, they're, they're contained by the structure of the menu. So for example, at the, um, the Brudenel, the seafood restaurant, they might not have chance to do any nose-to-tail cookery and break down a whole animal. So it gives them great opportunity that they wouldn't get at any other time. It's fabulous, and a lot of this is due to the fact that you had this opportunity, didn't you, yourself? Absolutely. So for me, the main reason why I'm so passionate about this um, many years on is because I joined a similar programme uh, many years ago, um, and I feel now it's my time to give back to the industry. I still have the same passion that I started with, um, and I want to kind of I want that to rub off onto these young chefs, and essentially, like you say, to try to help the industry re relight itself. So, was this your idea then, Andrew? Um, it was when I joined. I joined the company as a roaming chef, which would allowed me to travel in between all the hotels. What I very quickly discovered is that there is a gap. In, in new chefs and there's a lack of passion either from the head chef or, or from the sous chef being passed down through the kitchen so we very quickly changed my role into a training and development chef. Um, unfortunately um, I still do a lot of roaming chef work um, to cover restaurants but slowly we're adapting this so I'm, it allows me to work within the kitchens and, and help and develop the chefs um, whilst covering a shift as well. So this is a group of six hotels. We need this to spread out, don't we? Because six hotels, yeah, wonderful, but the country's got a few more than those. 
what can we do? There do are other people, people that run schemes like this, but to be able to run this more widespread is, is exactly what the industry needs. So it's on-the-job training, giving the chefs a bit more motivation than just their daily job. They need to have a little bit more, knowing that they're gaining a qualification now. Almost chefs, when they apply for jobs now, they ask what's in it for them, what's the package, what's the training and development. They're almost expecting it now. So is the future good? I think it's getting better and, and obviously days like today at Albra Food Festival it's, um, it's lots of amazing produce, lots of amazing chefs. There's still the passion within. I think we just need to try a little bit harder now to get it out and especially with the younger guys as well. Andrew Clements talking about the recently launched chef development programme at the Hotel Folk in Suffolk. Great to hear and we wish him and the team well and here's to its success. It's always inspiring to watch someone at the top of their game and it's a skill in itself to teach someone what they've learned. Tom, who we mentioned, it was his very first demo, well cooking anyway, as it turned out Tom had once been a beatbox musician before heading in the kitchen. You know the one... Uh, we had a rendition. You'll be pleased to know no spittle was shared with the dish he was doing. At a good food festival, you will always see the demo stages showcasing some of the producers who are there and a little special when you see a product that you ordinarily wouldn't, one being saffron. The fabulous food writer Sam Bilton has a book out all about the history of English saffron and it's thought that it was introduced to England in the 14th century. Then saffron growing became widespread in Essex, Suffolk and Norfolk and Chipping Walden changed its name to what we now know as Saffron Walden. You don't see too many growers around now, sadly, but pleased to say Suffolk still has one in the form of Sandling Saffron, run by Sarah and Seth Lord. They were there at Albrecht, and I managed to grab a few minutes with Sarah in between customers and began by mentioning that the price of saffron is on a par with gold gram for gram. It is, and that is purely down to the labour. It is very labour intensive because we don't use chemicals on the site. Um, we weed everything by hand and it's all picking and drying all by hand. So it's just manpower. So that is why saffron's so expensive. Take us back to the beginning then. So does she prefer a certain soil type to grow in? I think you can um, grow saffron in most places. But I think it takes, the, it takes on the soil and so because of the sandy soils around here I do think it depends where you grow it, the flavours that you get um, and so it just so happens that it, it grows very well where we are um, so, and that's why it's got a unique taste. So what, because it, it's crocus isn't it effectively? That's right, it's the crocus sativus, so it's the only one, so you can't use any other crocuses which are highly poisonous, so it's got to be a specific species. And the growing period, I'm, I'm learning so much on here, because obviously crocuses in your garden you kind of get, yeah they'll come up in spring, as you said it has to be a specific one, mm. but it's the same growing pattern, so you will come up in spring and then harvest in spring, no. how's it work? No, it's an autumn flower, ah. um, so it comes up in October, it's about to, the spears are just starting now, so we're expecting in the next week or two for the flowers to start and the flowers always come before the leaves and then it will last between four to five weeks and it's quite intensive so it's up at seven o'clock and then you might not finish until 11 o'clock at night because it's got to be picked, sorted and dried all in the same day. And you're picking, is it the, the stamens of it? Is it the little polleny bits? That's right, yes. And so all the red threads that you have to pick out of the flowers every day uh, with tweezers. So we try not to touch them with our fingers at all. 
um, so there's not much contact there. Um, and we try to keep the threads whole as well, so that you, people, it's, people like to see the threads because um, it's, it's a very beautiful thing to see anyway. Um, and they are really quite healthy because you can get different, different strands. Sometimes if it's a poor quality saffron, the strands are very thin, but ours produce a really nice thick, thick, thick thread, so it kind of, it's nice to see. So how, because you said it's all done by hand, how long does it take, I mean in the daytime, how many crocuses have you picked for instance? I think our highest at the moment is in the few, few thousands, so I can be up at the field for it. It takes about a couple of hours, three at the most, and then the rest of the day it's in the sorting shed, sorting it all out, and then making sure it's drying at the premium time. Um, for so to get the best quality. Is it knees hurt, backs hurt? It's the back. It's the back, <laughs> it's the back that hurts. Yeah. Yes, it can be quite painful. And so you end up having to move, depending, just to get a better feel of it during the day. But it's okay. Because <laughs> you, I guess you can't tread on anything, so you are just leaning over, aren't you? Yeah, you have to tread very carefully and watch where your feet are. So it's not, it's not an easy position to be in, wow. but it's okay. <laughs> and how many people are you doing? It's you, um, I guess it's, another half. No, it's a family activity so mostly it's it's me hang on you say it's a family activity kids you're not going on holiday we've all got to pick the the saffron fortunately the height tends to go into the half term so i do get them for the half term but that's it but we do have other businesses as well so it's got to factor in so yeah i do the majority of it but when it's peak i do get the husband in and he comes and helps too um, so we do it together so how big an area are you talking is it half an acre an acre bigger we have an acre but it's not quite full yet um, so we've probably got just a little less than half an acre, but it, it, it expands, so soon we'll kind of make it a little bit bigger. Yes, because crocuses, okay, I know you can't use the normal crocus, but we know they spread, don't we? So is it the same thing? Is it perennial? Do they just reseed themselves and pop up? They multiply, so under the ground the corns multiply, and so that's why you have to lift them and move them ever so often, because they become a bit overcrowded and they kind of poison their own ground a little bit. Um, so it's quite, it's a bit like having a daffodil bulge, you know, you have to kind of move them ever so often, so it's the same sort of process. Another hard labour intensive job to do in the future. <laughs> you can't do it with machinery, it's everything's got to be by hand. So the, 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 the saffron field, I know it's all top secret and I, I won't put you in a position because it is so important, but um, you, so I'm trying to think of this now, is what happens when they all finish, do they just die back, do, then, then, do you have to do anything before they crop up again apart from um, separate them? Um, well after the flowers the leaves come on and so that's quite an important time to be able to feed your saffron for the following year um, and so that's quite a, and it, it depends on the climate as well um, how much food they need and how much water they require um, so it's just a judging game each season <laughs> what's their what's their biggest well your biggest threat is it a, a bug is it a pest is it the weather what is it's it bowls <laughs> bowls will come in and eat eat the corns and underneath and so that is a, a fighting game I've got all sorts of deterrents on the ground just to try and make all sorts of sonic noises and things to try and keep them at bay but at the end of the day we have have to kind of weather the fact that we lose some to the bowls. <laughs> well, it's, well, hats off to you, you've been doing it for how long now? Five years now, so not very long in saffron, saffron turns, but doing quite well. And the osteopath is it every two weeks? <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Lord from Sandling Saffron in Suffolk, beautiful product. I bought some last year to make tea, as it's very, very good for you. Wishing them well with harvest, and if you thought weeding your garden was hard, imagine what they'll be doing in a couple of weeks. 
I have to say Suffolk is one bountiful county. The amount of top quality producers at the festival was lovely to see. As well as us, another bit of Shropshire was snuck in in the form of Netherton Foundry pans. You may recall on this very podcast a few weeks ago, a passion for seafood is their brand new Suffolk outlet. And I found myself selling a few Netherton pans on their stand. There might be a whole new career waiting for me in retail. Interesting that a lot of the people I met were couples, husband and wife teams, and our next guest is no exception. Steve Tricker and his wife Lynn sell their multi-award winning artisan venison and game pies and sausage rolls under the name Truly Traceable, which it really is. I shoot all our own venison. Um, we don't buy any venison in at all. Um, so everything is shot by me. It's butchered by me. So from the field to the pie, it doesn't leave my sight and we also keep them as species specific as well. So they're either muntjac, roe, Chinese water deer, fallow or red. Now going through that list of deer, I know muntjac shouldn't be here. And the Chinese one, is that? I mean, that they're not, not native to this country? As the name suggests, they come from China. Um, yeah, and the muntjac, there's six species of deer in the UK and only two of them should be here, and that's the red and the roe. Um, the fallow deer came in with the Normans or the Romans, depending on, um, depending on what literature you read. Uh, the Chinese water deer and the muntjac came in via the Duke of Bedford at the Woburn Abbey, and there's a, uh, another one on the south coast and the west coast of Scotland and the south coast of England called the Seeker deer, and that came in probably via Whipsnade Zoo and some private collections. So only the red and the roe is supposed to be here. So is it the same destruction as is in the grey and the red squirrel, where the grey squirrel took over territories? Is it a similar thing with the deer? Uh, no, the, the deer is more destructive to, to habitat rather than, than, than any other species. The, the reason why um, we only... The, the, roe and, the roe deer became extinct during the, the Middle Ages, and I believe it was restocked from Siberian and German stock later on so the uh, the german stock came into england and the siberian stock of roe went into scotland and as far as i'm aware the the siberian roe is slightly bigger than the um the german roe so we've got we've got roe back but they came via via other uh, other countries to restock the uk yeah they were hunted to extinction in henry the eighth and, and and through the middle ages yeah so the monk jack i do know they breed all year round where is that the only one that does breed all round and therefore lies a problem? Yeah, the muntjac breeds every, uh, all, all year round, roughly about every seven months. So the female muntjac from about the age of seven months is pregnant for the rest of her life. Um, she gives birth and within 36 hours she's ready to go again. So um, yeah, so we have a problem and, 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 and that means that there's no specific breeding season. So there's no season to shoot muntjac. So you can shoot muntjac all year round. Um, all the other deer have a specific breeding season. So we, we're, we're bound by, by seasons in which we can shoot. The devastation I know to trees and, and, and well agriculture is, and there's also, some say there might be a link with TB into cattle as well, I mean I don't know what you know about um, I did, TB is present in deer, I personally have never found TB uh, or, any other, uh, or any of the other notifiable diseases there, um, uh, but um, certainly habitat destruction um, from deer is, is, is immense at the moment um, the UK has a huge huge problem with deer we've got more deer in the UK now 
since since the ice ages there's no natural predators um, the TB issue um, without getting political about it badgers leak TB um, deer have the uh, the, the capability of carrying TB but whether that actually crosses over to bovine TB or not I don't know. Do they have a territory deer or do they just roam? They're roaming species, uh, um, red deer roam a lot, fallow are notorious roamers, um, roe deer tend to be uh, hefted to an area whereas muntjac and Chinese water deer are hefted to a slightly smaller area. So muntjac, they normally say muntjac would be two to three per acre of females and one male. So you've got the potential in, in a five acre wood to have possibly five muntjac present. And then, then nature has a habit of filling a vacuum. So you take them five out and you get another five coming in. So yeah, it's, it's a continuous problem all year round. So they strip trees? They, they strip, the, not so much the trees, they strip more of the understory away from where, where, where breeding birds would be nesting. So you, you, you're eating the understory out the little shrubs where nightingales, for instance, nest. So when the migratory birds coming in, they find a new habitat, so they move on. So therefore we're losing, we're losing valuable bird life as well. So we need people like you, Steve, to, to and, and it's good that you're then out of respect for the animal, okay, the ones that shouldn't be there but at least they're having a purpose it's not just just destroying them and that's it they're, yeah, I, they're going to food yeah yeah i mean what, what what what's not to like really it's it's local it's sustainable it's good for the environment it's low in fat it's low in cholesterol it's high in protein what's what's not to like really and and like i say it's it's sustainable it's out there it's it's not going away so what was it about it because one thing doing the deer shooting and and all that but then it's going do you know i reckon i'm going to convert it into a pie what what was that moment <laughs> it was it was just something i said to the wife we were making some sausage rolls for the local deli just some pork sausage rolls because my wife's pastry is quite good and um i just said well we've got a surplus of deer and i'm shooting a surplus of deer let's 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 go on an adventure and see if we can make a pie and <laughs> that was and, it. and there we are yeah. yeah and here we are now and that was nine ten years ago Good grief. I love the fact you say your wife makes you know, nice pastry. Poor woman's got a strap on her arm with tendonitis because she's doing it. Because it's all handmade, isn't it? Yeah, everything is handmade. Everything is handmade. Each and every deer is listed from um, from the field to the table. Um, and then uh, the, the, the batch number of the pies goes on to my wife's record with the cull details of all the deer. The pastry is purely butter, lard, water, pinch of salt. Um, in various different proportions, which even I don't know. So that 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 when 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 the wife shuffles off the mortal coil, then that's it. The pastry's gone with her. I'm sorry, but yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, we'll just have to have the venison. Yeah, I, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you can. But I mean, we 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 kind of pride ourselves on on the type of pies that you you're not going to get anywhere else: partridge and pear, and um, pheasant and chestnut from local estates, smoked muntjac and sour cherry. We've got. Um, rabbit pie, Suffolk rabbit pie, just ferreted rabbits from a chap up in um, Jason Fulshire, his name is. He comes from um, Fulshire the ferreter, he goes as, as uh, on the Instagram. Absolutely fantastic rabbits we get from him. No shot or anything in them, so yeah, all sustainable meat. Um, when I was waiting for you because you were serving some customers, I was chatting to your good lady and she said you were at primary school together. Me and Lynn started primary school in 1972. 
all through primary school, all through middle school, all through high school, left, went a separate ways. She went to South Africa for six years or whatever, came back and we re-met at a high school reunion <laughs> in 2003. Oh, and you've been together ever since? We've been together ever since, yeah. That's 24-7. Yeah. And the thing is... Takes we're a special time. Takes a special relationship. Yeah, to work and yeah. live together. Yeah. 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 I think you do need to get that pastry recipe that, that worries me that if anything happens, that's it. you got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> what a team. Truly traceable. And thank you to them both. Lynn was looking after customers while Steve and I chatted. Fascinating to hear him talk about deer. I know we have a few monk jack around us, as well as roe. And again, I didn't appreciate we had to restock our native species from other countries. Things you learn. Let's meet our last guest from Alborough Food Festival. And it's a real success story. Alice and Lily and her husband, Rod, were just setting up ready for the day with their Lily Puds Christmas Puddings, a business that Alison began eight years ago. But what was she doing before? I was working at the airport, Stansted Airport, yeah, as a research manager. Can you believe it? What's a research manager at an airport? We had various surveys that we used to go into the departure lounge or in arrivals and interview customers on their passengers on their experience. Yeah, so a lot of the time, you know, massive amount of refusals. But no, it was interesting. So we man- I managed the team who had the pleasure of speaking to passengers about their experience at Stansted Airport. Was it as they were leaving or coming home? Both. Both. And we used to count people and do all sorts of exciting stuff. A lot of, um, if they were doing a big project, so understanding whether they needed a bigger departure lounge or a bigger revivals area, then we used to go out and count people. So how long did you do that? I'm fascinated. Well, oh goodness me. So I was always involved with food. I left one job um, at 40-ish and did a law degree. (laughs) And while I was doing my law degree, I worked part-time at Stansted as an interviewer. And then when I finished the degree, uh, I didn't just wanted to do a degree. A bit mad, a bit crazy, but I did. And... My husband supported me through that, bless him. Uh, but I got promoted in the job at the airport and just carried on working for them. And then I was made redundant. So you didn't do the law? You just did the degree? No, I was going to do the law, but we had, was there three of us at university, I think, at the time. And to actually go on and do a barrister, it was really expensive. So, But I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was great fun and something I always wanted to do. Yeah. But then, as I say, I carried on. I had a great pension scheme with the airport, so stayed there. But then got made redundant, got a cheque, and thought I'd been making this Christmas pudding recipe for years, always loved food, always been involved with food, really, and decided to set up after coming here, visiting this show, and thought, I can do that. And that's where we're at. Just take us back a bit then. Are we saying that this is a family recipe that goes back how long? Are you talking grandma, great-grandma? No, it's my recipe. So I'm the grandma, so I can, in future generations, I will be grandma's recipe. Uh, okay. <laughs> I've been making it for about 20 years for friends and family. But I'm, I won a nutrition award when I was 16, a national nutrition award. So food's always been me. It was just through little quirks that I sort of ended up not doing food, really. So but so it came back to my roots. So you came to this festival yes. and saw the people. I now, did. was there anybody doing Christmas pudding? No. And you thought, I'll do that. <laughs> right. Did you see how busy these things get, though, and the, and oh. the work's involved? Uh, didn't understand any of that. 
often, you know, people, I think either people start like I did in their kitchen baking and just sort of, it just grows or they sort of have this massive business plan and strategy. That wasn't us. We just Decided. invested, you know, the money I'd got from the airport. We invested, I invested that. Um, did a lot of trade shows, got our name out really quickly. Um, we also service restaurants and gastro pubs. So the Chestnut Group is one of our customers here. Um, and we export now to Canada and America. No. Yeah. So just to, so right, you've said this is what we're going to do. You started in your kitchen. Yes. You knew you did it for family and friends. Yes. Have you started making them for a show, or what was the first thing? Do you remember doing? First thing was a farmers market. Yeah, so I got back from this show. First thing was all the registration. Having, having decided to do it, just literally, yeah. I thought I, I left the redundancy end of August. I thought I just want a break. You know, it's been pretty not very pleasant. So I thought, right, okay, let's just have a rest. Brought mother up here for a weekend break and as I say visited here mm-hmm. um, but then got home and thought right this is going to be really quick so I registered with the food authority I knew I'd got an advanced hygiene certificate so I knew stuff got some packaging together and we just sold 600 that year to some local shops and farmers markets I got good advice on pricing you know so many different elements to it um, serviced a restaurant sold 2000 didn't we to that restaurant in Chelmsford but Alison at this stage you're thinking am I still in my kitchen what what can't carry you're still in your kitchen it resembled a Turkish bath really a bit like a sauna or steam room you know what I mean it was just like you couldn't really see oh my do your paws good though you're scared amazing and then it was like family helping the next year it was like come on you've got to help us pack you know they've got to steam them cool them Pack them. People were press ganged into it. Yeah, <laughs> they were after their job in the day. So, can we come out every Tuesday and Thursday and help us pack puddings? So, this was eight years ago yeah. when it all started. Where are we now? Do you Are you no longer in your kitchen? No, we've got co producers now. So, I my focus is developing recipes. So, year one, 600 retail puddings, so the boxed puddings, and around 2,000 to food service. And this year, we're around, I'd say, 20,000 retail puddings and 10, 15,000 to food service. That's yeah. incredible. I mean, hats off to you. That, that is you. phenomenal. Yeah. Is it still, you still happy you made the decision? Are you? Oh, yeah, I'm happy. It's tiring. It's, it's, um, it's difficult to, when you're getting older, you know, because you think, well, what's going to be the exit sort of strategy? Um, We've got our family. We've got I've, we've got three children. The two girls are the eldest. They've got excellent jobs. Uh, as much as they love the business, it's just never going to give them the rewards. And our son lives in New Zealand with his wife, so that's a bit too distant. It's hard though. It's, it is hard work. I think anybody who runs a business like this, there's so many different aspects and angles to deal with. You know, Rod says oh, I don't delegate enough, but there's so much that has to be in your head that you can't share everything. You know, so yeah, this time of year you sort of get a bit whoa, but and Christmas, <laughs> Christmas puddings will sell all year round. No, not really. This is our first show. This is just about on the cusp of people thinking you're not mentioning Christmas just too early. The C word, people don't like the C word in sort of much earlier than this, do they? Would we have done it? 
<laughs> but um, yeah, Christmas about now is okay. Christmas Day, do you have your own pudding or oh, is yes. you just... Oh, you do? Oh, absolutely. 100%. That'd be criminal, wouldn't it? To buy somebody else's. Rum sauce or brandy sauce? Brandy butter. Brandy butter? Yeah, brandy oh. butter. Which we also sell. Creme anglaise. Creme yeah. anglaise. Oh, he's got posh custard over there. Yes. <laughs> More lovely people. And happy Christmas, Alison and Rod. Lily Puds, what a product. And I can't wait to open my figgy pudding one, which Alison kindly gave me as I left. As always, I will put all the details of my guests on Shat Bagley's Instagram and Facebook pages. Thank you to all of them and to you for getting in touch. Sorry I haven't been able to read out your messages this week, but we'll do next time. Love hearing from you, as you know, be it via social media or you can email podcast at theshackbagley.co.uk. And if you feel the urge to leave a review, please don't fight it. And I do hope you're following or subscribing too. It's totally free. But it does help when I do ask guests to join us. So that's it for another week. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Hmm. Wonder if it's unlucky to eat a Christmas pudding in October. Mm.